Welcome to Behavior Babes Podcast, presented by me, Dr. Amanda Kelly. Aloha. Joining me today for a second visit here on the Behavior Babe Podcast is Dr. Ellie Kazemi. Hi, Ellie. Hi, Amanda. Thanks for joining again. I wanted to have you on today to kind of delve deeper into the discussion on supervision. Are you game for that? Totally. That's something I'm very passionate about, and I'm excited to be on the show. Awesome. Do you mind just doing a quick bio background about yourself for anyone who might not have listened to your previous episodes? A quick bio background. Um, huh, that, that, that's a good one. Uh, I <laughs> uh, obtained my PhD at UCLA, not in behavior analysis, but I'd been working with individuals with different disabilities. I then was hired at Cal State Northridge, and it was when I found behavior analysis, and I was um, doing a lot of continuing education hours and sitting for the BCBA exam. And simultaneous with that, I started the ABA program at CSUN, which then really, I think, catapulted a lot of the other things I've done in my career because to have the best program we possibly could have, to have individuals who come out of the program feeling competent, I had to learn a lot, and um, supervision was one of those areas, and that has a lot to do with my passion in supervision because I felt that our candidates needed that, so um, that's kind of where my journey began in, in the supervision area, but I didn't personally start in behavior analysis. Yeah, that was going to be one of my questions is, like, why the interest in supervision? I mean... I have an interest in having really good quality, competent behavior analysts out there, and I'm sure that we all have that shared vision. But what about supervision specifically, or kind of where did you go to get that information? How did you, why is it the thing that now you are known for? <laughs> um, you know, it's uh, one of those things. You you get involved. I'm, I'm a doer. Um, I got involved in developing the program, and I was working with Jerry Shook in developing the program at Cassidy Northridge. And as we would provide the coursework in behavior analysis, I realized that really what people needed was application of that information and multiple exemplars of that, but that it was so individualized depending on the context they were in. So at the very beginning of the program at CSUN, uh, I was supervising lots of our own students And in that process, I realized the importance of good supervision and not just in taking principles of behavior analysis and showing the application of those principles and not just in giving people confidence when they conducted a functional analysis, but also in just helping them as professionals, helping them realize some of the things that they do that create barriers for them in collaborating with other people. And a lot of those things, brought me back to my own history when I was being supervised at UCLA, and I realized that a good supervisor kind of can really take someone, provide them with the competencies they're looking for and the confidence they're looking for um, in the analysis that you, you just can't get in the classroom, and then also to provide them with the help and support they need to become the type of professional that people want to hear. The type of professional that people want to hear, that they want to be around, that they want to learn from, because that's what's going to get us invited into the conversation, right, that we want to be a part of as behavior analysts. And you mentioned identifying some of the barriers that people might have in their um, 
for themselves. Um, mm-hmm. Are you are you thinking about in that way, like some of the soft skills, or what are some of those barriers that people, students, um, individuals pursuing might? What have they encountered? What have you seen? See, when I when I think about the type of supervision I received at UCLA, there were, I think you know my supervisors were were honest and transparent with some of the things that they saw and. They pointed out things that were strengths uh, in what I was doing that I continue to capitalize on and grow from. Um, they would point out things that I was doing either with clients or even in presentation style. You know, one of my advisors sat me down and said, Ellie, you do these testimonials. You kind of come in and out of the audience with ease. Keep that. Make that a focal point of your presentations because it makes it relatable, eyes are on you. And a lot of how I present today still is uh, based on the fact that he had identified that as a strength in the way I spoke with people, despite the audience size. Um, The other kinds of things that have always stuck with me that really changed the trajectory of my career were sometimes corrections that were hard for me to hear. I was a bit of a punk. Um, and when I entered graduate school, I had a bit of this attitude that, you know, if I'm competent and if I know what I'm doing, people will want to hear from me. I'm going to be the most knowledgeable person around in that area. And I had to learn a lot about how to present myself in a way that's amicable. And, and I think those are tough conversations to have with supervisees. And I'm really glad that some of my supervisors took them on, um, I remember one of my supervisors, when he observed me doing an interview with a family, telling me that the way that I was sitting on the chair, I was kind of slouching, and I was wearing pants, and I had just kind of left my legs open and was slouching back on the, on the chair having this conversation, this interview. And he said, I'm, I'm so glad to see that you are comfortable in the interview questions. You've made this super informal but I want you to kind of think a little bit about what that relays when you're doing that to the families. What's the perception you want them to have at the end of that interview? The interview will result in a report. You're writing up a psychoeducational report, which is what I was doing at the end of those interviews, that's then going to be reviewed by judges. And a lot of our reports would end up in court, the ones that we would write at UCLA. And he's like, do you think that, that it's good for you to be doing that in this informal way, will you be taken as seriously? Or you can make some basic adjustments, sit up straight, cross your legs, um, drop your eyes when you're done hearing about something. And that really changed my perspective in the interviews I was holding because, you know, it, it was true. I was I was taking it very informally because at that point I'd done thousands of interviews and, and it was easy to do. So I was no longer thinking about what does the family see when I'm interviewing that way. Um, but those corrections, I'm sure, were not easy to bring to my attention because it's kind of embarrassing to hear that you're slouching and your legs are uncrossed and you look informal and, and that's not going to result in the best thing. But it's so important, I think, in a supervisory experience. They definitely made a huge difference for me. I recently had a wonderful conversation with one of my former supervisors, and I said to her, do you remember when I saw you a couple years ago and you said, oh, I didn't expect that you were going to amount to this? And she goes, I did not say that. That is not how I said it, and that is not what I meant. 
And I said, no, 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 I'm, I'm teasing you. We have really good rapport. We're friends now even. Um, I said, but what you said to me was, I didn't see this coming. Like, mm-hmm. I didn't expect the student in my class would one day be behavior, babe. And, um, and so, like, we've had some conversations about that, you know, and, and she's like, you know, because you would walk into the classroom and you would, like, sometimes take off your shoes or you would bring donuts for everybody. And I'm like, listen, you have a four-hour exam. Take this seriously. And she's like, and, you know, I later learned, like, you were taking it seriously, but it, I didn't always, you know, she didn't always feel that or, or receive that from me. And it was uh, what I told her was, you know, I'm making fun of the words that you used to say it to me. I said, but the reality was we had a rapport that she could say it that way. We weren't in an official supervisory relationship, and you know, anymore. But that sort of like your intentions are very different sometimes than the impact that you're having on people. And so, yeah, the more we understand that uh, of about ourselves, the easier it is to receive it. But mm-hmm. as someone who's a supervisor, how do you go about delivering that kind of feedback yourself? You know, I think it's interesting that you say that. So it's a great example of something that tends to work for you. You know, when I think behavior babe, I don't think of this uh, Dr. Kelly with a suit on. I think of a smiling, beautiful woman who is in Hawaii and wears starfish earrings and makes conversations around really serious, important topics digestible. So I think a part of those things kind of worked for you. And as a supervisor, I find it's really important for me to attend carefully to the supervisee before making general statements about things that they need to change. It's hard to have hard, fast rules. Cross your legs at all times when you're sitting across a a family. I think that we, we try really hard to have set standards for professional conduct, but the truth is something sometimes work for people. I've had, you know, advisees that are super quirky. They have the nerdiest laugh. And sometimes I see that totally works for them. Families love them because of that. And then there are individuals who can have a similar topography, but then there are other variables that differ for them. And they need to not kind of hold back some of the laugh because it can come off as sarcasm, for example. I think a lot of it is about watching the individual and watching the impact of their behavior on others to be able to kind of use that as examples to help them along rather than these hard, fast rules of here's what I think you should look like. Yeah, I really appreciate the way in which you talk about, you know, bringing being a behavior analyst into it, right? Like observation. (laughs) And then what do we learn from that observation? And really being able to look at, you know, sometimes things are appropriate, um, same behavior, same person, and sometimes they're not. Same behavior, same person, different setting. Mm-hmm. So definitely knowing how to differentiate that is going to be really key and critical in being able to deliver and provide feedback. Um, you know, you have all of these experiences, which I believe is what led to the culmination of them on your website and then later uh, more recently in the book that you have released. Um, just curious if we can talk about that for a second. Um, what audience did you have in mind when you wrote this book on supervision? Um, you know, I'm really glad you asked that because my perspective of supervision is uh, that sometimes 
supervisees or students can be intimidated when they, they think someone's going to come and watch me, someone's going to tell me what to do. I know I certainly felt that way when I signed up for supervision um, as a graduate student. But as I took on the journey, I realized that actually it was nothing but opportunities. Here's an opportunity for someone with more experience and interest in me, investment in me becoming stronger and better, being around when I'm doing something, and then to tell me how I can do it differently so that I can keep growing. It really was not the perspective I took. I saw it as someone's going to come and tell me when I've screwed up and they're going to tell me how I didn't do it right and I really need to look better when I do it. I want to be impressive. Being wrong is, is difficult for me. I'm much of a perfectionist. And so when I wrote the book, I realized that that perspective change for me came from the fact that a lot of the supervision that I was provided was uh, based on things I needed to meet in competencies. So I needed to find the opportunities, much like medical residents do. So they look for, ah, this procedure is going to be taking place. I'm going to find every way I can to go to this procedure so that I can have the opportunity to gain this in my experiences. But that when we are providing supervision to behavior analysts, sometimes they're not coming to us from that perspective of, I'm going to seek the opportunity. I need you to do this for me as a supervisor. Hey, look at me do this. So I wrote the book really to the supervisee um, so that they would have, you know, some control, take that control over their supervision and be able to go to a supervisor and say, I'm learning here about, feedback being done in this way, let's have a conversation around how you typically give feedback. Um, what are some of the ways I can solicit feedback about my professional conduct from you? Even some of the exercises I've provided is for people to begin thinking about some of their own activities and then to bring it to supervision and ask a supervisor for that because I think that's how medical residents grow. And it really was like in my journey – um, the best part of my supervision was when I realized, uh-oh, this is not about someone coming and telling me when I'm doing something wrong. This is about someone saving my ass and helping me. I hope I can say that on the podcast. I just realized. Yes, you can. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, and I, and I, so I, I think the book is written, uh, supervisors certainly can grow from seeing all the performance tools. There's chapters on how to give feedback. So obviously a supervisor can read that section and learn more about how to provide effective feedback. But I wrote it to the supervisee so that the supervisee would solicit those things in supervision. And take some ownership of their the, the path that they want to be on and the journey that they want to, you know, the adventure they want to take. I think I've shared with you before, I'm not sure if we have shared on the podcast, but when I was doing my supervision for my BCBA, um, I was already a BCABA and not, I don't think like hours went, like I didn't count the same hours. I'm pretty sure I just started over because I was like, cool, supervision. But in the final semester that I was in the master's program, the BACB was changing or the requirements for supervision were increasing and they were going into effect. And this was back in 2007. And I remember meeting with the director and saying, like, how do I finish all my classes before this new requirement happens? Like, basically, how do I get out without having those additional 20 hours of supervision? And 
um, I look back on that now and I would just like totally smack myself across the face. If I could go back to my former self and say something, it would just be a smack because why would I not want additional guidance, support, training, and feedback? And the reality is I did want that, but I also wanted to graduate and I wanted to get going and I wanted to get out there and, um, you know, I, I continued on into the PhD program, so in many ways I was still receiving supervision and support. But there are those competing contingencies, and I know that you thought about that as you wrote your book. And so how do you feel that the way that the book is structured or the way in which you're trying to approach it um, empowers supervisees to advocate but to also still navigate their competing contingencies or their daily life? Like, how does it how does it help them do that? Um, I think that that's an excellent point. Um, and I think that the way that I structured the book, it's to make supervision functional. Um, the guidelines provided by BACB are to help the supervisor and the supervisee uh, have some structure and to make sure that they don't kind of get lost in the path of supervision and, and to attend to the different things that the person needs to gain in their repertoire. And I think that's super important. Over the years, as the BACB has kind of brought forth more and more standards for supervision, it's not easy. Even for me as a supervisor, you know, new things come about and I struggle with how do I incorporate them now into supervision. But you know, I think of it very functionally um, from the stance of how do I how do we create a relationship um, such that uh, one of us doesn't get lost to to a specific thing that's happening in supervision and that we continue this this path together. So functionally, at the end of it, you then can become a supervisor that I'm proud of, and everyone that you touch, everyone that you supervise. I can say has been a byproduct of partly my supervision so that you're confident and feel competent and are competent in what you're doing. Functionally speaking, I think um, I always keep that in mind, that that's what this is about. You just mentioned something that I hadn't hadn't fully thought about in preparing for this um, podcast. Excuse me. But how do we teach potential future supervisors who are current supervisees to develop the supervisory repertoire. Did no, I, does, do you understand that question? Absolutely. Okay. And I think that since that's the function of supervision, right? So the function of supervision is to kind of multiply ourselves um, as supervisors. It's to take the skills and the experiences we've gained to bring uh, forth emerging people interested in our profession so that they represent us and they continue to provide supervision to others. And, and, you know, everything I do, I put butterflies on because I truly think of it as a butterfly effect. We are, we are, we, there's much need for our services. And if I could have it my way, we would take over the world with behavior analysis. And, and I think to do that, we need to, from the onset of supervision, begin with, this is the goal. The goal is for you, and I say this to my supervisees all the time, and then they turn it around and tell me um, many times that this is exactly what they're turning into, and that is my job is to make them faster, better, more competent, and people with more swag, typically, than I am as a supervisor. They're better versions of me. And that that's kind of, I think, what supervision is meant to be, is, is to kind of populate uh, 
the experiences we've had so that your supervisee does not have to have every one of those make the same mistakes you've made over and over again, but to have guidance um, to be able to be better and add than, than you've been in your journey. I love that you also offered a definition. That's the function of supervision, to multiply ourselves. And then I think about that in many ways, like you said, the ripple effects and the things that go on. And, you know, people are really proud of their behavior analytic lineage or their lineage in whatever profession that they're in, right? Like when you, for me, I mean, I am a byproduct of Dr. Susan Ainsley. Now, a lot of other people had a lot to do, I'm sure, with me, but she is some of my most, you know, memorable interactions. I used to joke and say that, well, I'm not sure if it's a joke, but like I feared her, right? Like that's why mm-hmm. she's like, you were coming in, kicking off your shoes, eating donuts. And I'm like, mm-hmm. well, it was sort of a coping strategy for, you know, this really intimidating person that I admired that I aspired to be like, really. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when, when advisee, you, you shift that perspective of they're trying to, you know, tell me I'm wrong or they're, they're, they're critical or criticizing me, even if that's not their delivery, that could be just how we feel in that, in that position. And then it's that moment where you're like, oh my goodness, it's because they, they, they're create. Oh wow! It's because they believe in me, mm-hmm. and you know you've you've been really clear about that as sort of you know something that's important to you is like really believing in your supervisees, and and really um, having that shared mission of like no, we're all going to get you where you need to go, and we'll do it together. Um, you know, what are some areas of research in supervision? Because I know a lot has gone into um, you know all the knowledge that you have. You definitely have gained from going, seeing, experiencing, talking, and reading. Um, do you mind sharing that with us? Sure. I, I love talking about what I love. Um, I, uh, I think that the two primary areas in supervision, um, okay, I'll tell you three, that I've been tackling in my lab um, have been uh, feedback, giving performance feedback, because I think that we have a lot of literature around feedback. But the truth is that giving feedback is so much more complex than the way we deliver it when we do something like behavior skills training. There is clearly the procedures or the instructions given, and there's a clear outcome we're looking for. We're able to kind of say, here's where you went right, here's where you went wrong. Let me model for you how to do this differently, and then provide support and feedback until the individual can come to that competency. And then there's performance feedback we give about things that we don't have such guidelines for. Like, you know, I'm, I'm going to share with you a little bit about the way that you look at people. The length of time that you look into their eyes can be uncomfortable because you're standing very close to individuals and we need to work on you giving people a little bit of space. This is, this is feedback that's absolutely necessary as a supervisee is becoming a professional and they want to be able to build that rapport that people feel comfortable around them. Um, But we're not, as supervisors, necessarily trained to give that type of feedback at all. And so I've become very interested in how do we uh, provide training to supervisors so that they feel much more confident in the different types of feedback they need to give to supervisees. Um, This second area of research that I've gotten very involved in and I'm pretty passionate about is in conflict resolution. Um, And that's because I think that a supervisor is really a leader in any organization. On one level, 
They are overseeing individuals who aspire to be them, hopefully, if they're doing their job right, and people who want to learn everything that they know, and individuals who are carrying out procedures so that as a team, services are occurring in in the best way possible, in the most effective way possible for uh, any consumer. And, you know, in all of these interactions with teachers, with parents, with other staff members, or even between colleagues, there is bound to be conflict. When we're in the same environment, we're using the same resources, it's possible that we have very different opinions about what should happen, and our values differ. And in those times, people are likely to focus on those differences and forget the common ground. And it's really important for a supervisor to not avoid run away from conflict because they are the, they're the leader. They're the person people are marching behind. They look to them. So when two staff may have some differences in values or one feels that the other is not carrying their weight, the person they're looking to for some support is going to be that supervisor. And I think that if we're not trained as to how to deal with such conflicts, we're likely to avoid them because conflict is difficult. It's aversive. Um, And so I'm interested in how do we teach people to approach conflict rather than run away from it. It's not intuitive. Uh, Kind of bring forth the issues at hand and how to resolve it so that the people involved can move forward um, collaboratively on things. So conflict resolution has become a really uh, big area of interest for me. Um, And then I think the third area of interest for me is how do we make it so that a supervisor is not a broken tape? There are many things that we teach across supervisees. We do it over and over again, and it's because the person needs practice and they need multiple exemplars. Um, How do we make it so that the material they took from their classroom um, is at a place where we can apply it for them and provide them with better examples? And some of that has kind of turned into interests for me in leveraging technology. Uh, Can I um, set the occasion for some of these things to occur in a simulated world where you can then access feedback and practice things in that simulated world so that by the time that you're coming into a supervisory experience, um, you're at a higher level skill um, so that, you know, we can distribute the time of supervisors better. So I'm, I'm getting a lot of interest in computer-based instruction. How do we do that better? What are some of the ways we can provide examples and models so people are better prepared for that applied setting? Things like that. Wow, I'm taking <laughs> copious notes. I'm like, all right, right now, feedback, conflict resolution, don't be a broken tape. And that's something that I really enjoy about, you know, every time we have a conversation, um, I don't feel like I'm being lectured to. I don't feel like I'm in a class, but I do feel like I need to absorb every word that you say. So yay for podcast, letting this live on beyond today's conversation. <laughs> Um, you know, an area of interest for me outside of, you know, our typical applications um, is something like, you know, sustainability. And one of the difficulties I find is that when people are interested in that topic or in another topic that's considered branching out, it's very hard to get supervisors who um, or a supervisory experience that can be tailored to understanding some of those applications Um, of our science and other areas. And I know that you do a lot, like you were just mentioning, with technology, interests with artificial intelligence, some of the work that you've done with FEMA and NASA. And I'm just wondering for you, 
how does supervision come into and play into those projects and and how do people gain experience when when um, maybe there's not yet a lot of opportunities for those areas of interest for them? Um, you know, this is an excellent question because I think that when you look at my bios or my curriculum vitae, I'm involved in, um, you know, the fire project where we're working with firefighters and evaluating the type of training that they're doing and helping them create behavior measures to look at their training. And then uh, most recently we were able to get the NASA grant, so we're going to be working with engineers in recruiting and maintaining um, individuals who are interested uh, in helping NASA in uh, space exploration and uh, development of uh, the next phase of things that NASA is interested in, who are behavior analysts. So these are super, super exciting times because I feel like we're finally moving to dissemination of behavior analysis. Um, and a lot of the projects we're involved in involve, involve helping their leadership. Um, I, and, for example, with the NASA project, you know, a lot of their interests are in how do they ha create uh, trainings for their engineers so that when they're using the newest robotic technology, the SWARM technology, that they will feel successful in those interactions with the robots rather than begin to try to do everything on their own because the whole point of having those robots is to enhance the human experience. So in those times, I'm able to kind of supervise students as to how to relate and talk about behavior analysis in terms that's understandable by, by a bunch of engineers who have no history in psychology, no history in behavior analysis. Um, and then also to be able to have them create performance tools to create opportunities for direct observation of behavior outside of what they would typically see in any of our textbooks. Um, so it's super exciting times. And still for me, it's all under how do I best supervise my students who want to venture out of providing services to individuals with developmental disabilities and potentially work at NASA. So create opportunities and start to empower those leaders in the leadership positions to see the value in, in what we can bring to the conversation. I think that that's charged for everybody in our field and in every field to kind of cross-mingle in that way. We want to see those interdisciplinary um, applications and partnerships. And it's really exciting, the work that you're doing in those areas. And um, I know offline you had made a comment to me, like, somebody look at, you know, the projects I'm in, it, it might look like I'm all over the place. And I really don't think that that's the case. You know, my perspective is, if, you know, you're sort of infiltrating or um, embarking in new areas that people are really excited to hear about and to be a part of and to be in the periphery with. Um, you know, before we end our podcast episode for today, I want to uh, mention the publication, the piece that you and I believe it was your research um, student or assistant in the Operance magazine. Mm -hmm. Can you speak to that just quickly for us? Yeah, I take a lot of pride in involving my students at all levels um, because I think that an opportunity that comes my way is an opportunity to mentor and give my supervisee um, a chance to put themselves out there because that's the reason that they, they come and work with me. Um, so we were interviewed by Joyce Tu and her team for this, this um, unlimited 
unlimited um, uh, video training that she's providing. And she asked if I would talk about some of the research I'm doing, particularly the things that we're doing that are experimental behavior analysis. And so I involved all of the students in, in doing that. And Adisa Patel has taken much interest in dissemination of behavior analysis. And boy, does he have the swag. I think he's just a fantastic representative of our field. I'm so excited about the things that he's doing. So when um, I got contacted by the current editor of the operant and asked if I would be willing to contribute, I was like, sure, as long as my students can write for this piece. So he helped me uh, kind of take all the different projects that we're doing. And a lot of what we put together is a vision for how we can disseminate behavior analysis so that even the operants magazine be shared with people outside of behavior analysis. Um, and um, we wrote that piece together, so I'm really proud of it. Yeah, one of the things that's so great about, you know, the operants magazine and or the newsletter and your contribution is that it's so easy to digest. And it is a great way that the BF Skinner Foundation is doing a wonderful job at getting the applications, the, the the dialogue out there in a way that can be digested by people both within our field and outside of our field of your analysis. And also, I know that we've mentioned your book, and to some people, this is this like mysterious book. We didn't mention the title and your co-authors, and I think give you an opportunity to do that as well. Um, talk about your fieldwork uh, book. The title of my book is Fieldwork and Supervision for Behavior Analysts. Uh, my co-authors and I decided to make it a handbook, which means it has activities, exercises, and pages that they can download and use. Uh, some of those are performance tools. Some of those are just activities that they can do either in group supervision or in individual supervision. Um, my co-authors are, are Brian Rice, who was one of my first supervisees ever. He's now a faculty member at Catholic Ridge and supervises many of our students. And Peter Adzian, who was my husband at the time when I started the program at CSUN, and uh, really instrumental in the developing some of the material that I was using. We were both providing a lot of supervision to the students when we first started the program and creating a structure um, that I think a lot of students benefited from. So I was glad that he uh, contributed to the book so that we could put that out as a whole um, for individuals. Well, and I'm so glad that you did. I have a copy, and I refer to it, and I refer people to it. And um, just so everyone knows, I tend not to promote things that I don't personally believe in, of course. And so... You know, thank you for doing that and for putting it together. And books aren't easy. And uh, um, I'm looking at the cover now, and I'm just really now understanding the connection to all the butterflies in the background. And <laughs> it's really cool that you offered us that insight and that kind of comes full circle. Um, thank you again for joining today. I really appreciate the conversations. Of course, I'm going to have you back on the show. We'll just have you as this ongoing, reoccurring um, guest of interest because supervision is such a a critical topic, and it's a topic of interest to those who are listening to the podcast. So, again, I want to thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me, Amanda, and thank you for all the great work you do in dissemination of what we do. And for anyone who's interested in learning more about applied behavior analysis, this topic, and others, please check out www.behaviorbabe.com.